let there be joy. The Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 16 through 33. This section of John 16, 16 through 33, concludes the upper room discourse, and it deals primarily with the emotions of the disciples. They were sorrowing. They were confused about some of Jesus' teachings and they were afraid. It's actually an encouragement to me to know that the disciples were real men with real problems, yet the Lord, yet the Lord was able to use them. So I look at myself like that. I'm a real person with real problems, and yet I'm, I'm, it's my prayer that God will be able to use me in some way, some way, any way at all whatever is his will you know we sometimes get false impressions that these men were different from us especially endowed with spiritual knowledge and spiritual courage but you know what such was not the case with them they were human one of the recurring themes in this section is joy the 11 were certainly not experiencing experiencing much joy that night but what Jesus said to them eventually made a difference in their lives just as it can make a difference in our lives today tenderly and patiently our board our Lord explained how his people can have joy in their lives through difficult times through times that we don't understand there is a principle here in this in chapter 16 God brings joy to our lives not by substitution but by transformation his illustration of the woman giving birth makes this clear because the same baby that caused the pain also caused her the joy so in birth God does not substitute something else to relieve the mother's pain Instead, he uses what is there already, but transforms it. Now, every parent knows what it's like to have an unhappy child because the, you know, they, <coughs> excuse me, they have a broken toy. Or maybe one of their friends ha has gone home and was not able to stay and play. You know what? The parent can do one of two things. We can substitute something else for the broken toy or for the friend that couldn't stay, or we can transform the situation into a new experience for the unhappy child. If the mother always gets a new toy for the child each time a toy is broken, that child will grow up expecting every problem to be solved by substitution. But if a, if a mother always phones another, say, a different friend or different playmate and invites him or her over the child will grow expecting grow up expecting people to come to his rescue whenever there is a crisis the result either way is a spoiled child who will not be able to cope with reality so that's not what god wants for his children the way of substitution for solving problems is the way of immaturity so the way of transformation is the way of faith, and it's the way of maturity. 
And that's the way that the Lord will take us. We cannot mature emotionally. We can't mature spiritually if somebody is always replacing our broken toys. Jesus did not say that the mother's sorrow or her pain was going to be replaced by joy, but that the sorrow was going to be transformed into joy. So the same baby that caused the pain also caused the joy. And so it is in our our Christian lives. God takes seemingly impossible situations and he adds the miracle of his grace and he transforms trial into triumph and sorrow into joy. The Bible says, The Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing. See Nehemiah 13 verse 2. Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave. This story, let's look at it for a moment. They sold him as a slave and Potiphar put him into prison as a criminal. But God transformed that hopeless situation of defeat into victory. Egypt's persecution of Israel only caused them to multiply and prosper the more. And then look at King Saul's murderous pursuit of David. It only made him more of a man of God and helped produce the Psalms that encourages your heart and my heart today. Encouraged his heart in that day. Even Jesus took the cross, a symbol of defeat and shame, and transformed it into a symbol of victory and glory. Now that we understand this principle, let's put it to work in our lives. For one thing, we can better understand the problems and the questions of the disciples. In John 16, 16, Jesus announced that in a little while they would not see him. Then in a little while they would see him. So it was a deliberately puzzling statement. Um... John 16, 25, he spoke in Proverbs, dark sayings, and the disciples did not understand. This also encourages me as I study my Bible and find statements that I can't understand. Even the disciples, they had their hours of spiritual ignorance. So what did Jesus mean? Possibly he was talking about the soon-to-occur events in connection with his death and his resurrection. After his burial, they would not see him for a little while. But when he would rise from the dead, they would see him again. So he had told them on, on previous occasions that he would rise from the dead after three days. But his words did not sink into their minds and their hearts. It didn't make sense at the time to them. It was much too deep for them at the moment, maybe to grasp that at that moment. However, I think that Jesus was speaking primarily about his resurrection to the Father. Because in John 16, 16, he says, Because I go to the Father. And this ties in with verse 10 where he said, Because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. So the disciples, they did not live to see the return of Christ, but they did die and see him when they arrived in glory. 
So in comparison to eternity, the time that the church has been awaiting the Lord's return was really, has really been but a little while. So as we see in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 16 through 18, that a little while is used and in, in, in God's timing it is a little while but our timing is and his timing are so different so the phrase a little while is used in this the in this very sense in Hebrews 10:37 where it said for yet a little while and he that shall come will come and will not tarry so instead of asking Jesus to explain his words, the men began to discuss it among themselves and almost as though they were embarrassed to admit their ignorance. However, you do not get very far by exchanging your ignorance. It's when we come to the Lord and ask for his help that we learn the important lessons of life. Egypt was glad when Israel departed, Psalms 105. And the world was glad when Jesus Christ moved off the scene. Both the religious and the political leaders of that day expected to see the early believers die out and the Christian movement disappear. But such was not the case. That's not what happened. So Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to his church and the church is carrying the word of his grace to the ends of the earth. The early believers even rejoiced when they were persecuted. See Acts 5 verse 41. And then to the mother experiencing birth pains every minute, if we go back to that, every minute may seem like an hour. Our concept of time changes with our feelings. So 30 minutes in the Say the dentist chair might seem like hours to you while hours of fishing or hours of dining with uh, friends may seem like a very short time. The mother feels as though the birth is taking a long time when really it may be only a little while, but it's painful. So every minute seems like forever. And when the baby has been born, pain is forgotten as joy fills her heart. The world today does not want Jesus Christ or his church. The world is rejoicing while we are suffering, longing for our Lord to return. In fact, all the creation is suffering birth pangs because of sin, awaiting for Jesus' return. See Romans 8.22. When the bridegroom is away, the bride mourns, Matthew 9, verse five, uh, 15. But in a little while he shall return, and we shall go with him to heaven to enjoy the Father's house. So while the immediate application may have been to the sorrowing hearts of the disciples, the ultimate application is to all of God's people as they await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. To us it seems like a long, long wait, but God does not measure time as we do. See 2 Peter 2, verse 3. 
while we're waiting, we, we must deal with our trials, our hurts, on the basis of transformation and not substitution. If we expect to mature in the Christian life, then we have to look at it like this. We can't have substitution. We've got to expect maturity in the Christian life. There, there is a promise to believe in 16 verses 23 through 28. The, the central theme of this paragraph is prayer. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. That's verse 24. It's important to note here that the text uses two different words for ask. Although they can be used interchangeably, the word used in John, um, verse 19, verse 23, and verse 26 means to ask a question or to ask a request. It's used when someone makes a request of someone equal to them. The word translated ask in John 6, verse 23b, 24, and 26b, pray means to request something of a superior. So this latter word was never used by Jesus in his prayer life because he is equal to the Father. We come as as inferiors to God, asking for his blessing, but he came as the very Son of God, equal with the Father. So in John 16, verse 23, what period of time did Jesus mean by quote, in that day. I think he was referring to the time after the coming of the Holy Spirit. He promised them in John 16, 22, that he would see them again. And he kept his promise. He spent 40 days with them after his resurrection, teaching them clearly the truths they needed to know in order to take his place and minister on earth. So, quote, that day cannot refer to the day of his return, the day of his return for his church, because there's no evidence in Scripture that we shall pray to him after we get to heaven. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him a question. In verse John 16, verse 19, he assured them that a day would soon come when they would not ask him questions. Instead, they would pray to the Father and he would meet their needs. So this was the promise that they desperately needed to believe, that the Father loved them and would hear their request and meet their needs. That's what we need to hear today, that the Father loves us He hears our requests, and he meets our needs. While Jesus was on earth, he met all the needs of his disciples. Now he would return to the Father, but the Father would meet their needs. So here's the wonderful promise and privilege of prayer. Our Lord had mentioned prayer many times in his ministry, and he had set the example of prayer in his own life. He was indeed a man of prayer. In his upper room message, Jesus emphasized prayer. He made it clear that believing prayer is one of the secrets of a fruitful Christian life. 
In John 16, verses 25 through 27, Jesus explained that there would be a new situation because of his resurrection and his ascension and because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He would no longer speak to them in terms that demanded spiritual insight for their understanding, but he would speak to them plainly and reveal the Father to them. So there in the upper room, he'd used a number of, of uh, symbolic images to get his message across. The, the washing of their feet, the father's house, the vine and the branches, and the birth of a baby. So in the days that followed, these images became clearer and clearer to the disciples as they would be taught by the Spirit of God. The purpose of the Bible study is not simply to understand profound truths, but to get to know the Father better. In John verse 16, verse 25, he said, I will show you plainly of the Father. So if our reading and Bible study falls short of this, it does more harm than good. There would, there would be not only a new situation in teaching, but also a new situation in their praying. He had already intimated this in John verse 23. Jesus would return to heaven to be with the Father. And there he would minister as our high priest, making intercession for us, the Bible says in Romans 8.34 and Hebrews 7.25. He would also minister as our advocate in 1 John 1 and 9. As our high priest, Jesus gives us grace to keep us from sinning. As our advocate, he restores us when we confess our sins. His ministry in heaven makes possible our ministry of witnessing on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you read the book of Acts, you discover that the early church depended on prayer. They believed the promises of God and asked God for what they needed. It would do all of God's people good if they reviewed regularly what Jesus taught about prayer in this upper room discourse. There is indeed joy in praying and in receiving answers to prayer. There is joy in meeting the conditions that Jesus laid down for successful praying. I think it was George Mueller who said that true prayer was not overcoming God's reluctance, but overcoming God's willingness. So there's joy in prayer, and there's joy in realizing the principle of transformation. Jesus shared a third kind of joy, the joy of sharing his victory over the world. In verses 29 through 33, or 29 through 30, the disciples suddenly moved out of their spiritual stupor and made a tremendous affirmation of faith. First, they claimed to understand what he'd been teaching them, though this claim was probably presumptuous. 
as their subsequent actions proved. They seemed unable to grasp the meaning of his promised resurrection. They were bewildered even after his resurrection as to the future of Israel. See Acts 1 verse 6. And I'm not criticizing them because we today have just as many blind spots when it comes to understanding God's word. All I'm suggesting is that their affirmation was a bit presumptuous. They not only affirmed their understanding, but they also affirmed their faith and their assurance. Now we are sure by this we believe. So it was quite a statement of faith, and I believe the Lord accepted it. In his um, prayer recorded in the next chapter, Jesus told the Father about his disciples and reported on their spiritual condition. That was in John 17, verses 6 through 8. Certainly he knew their weaknesses, but he was quick to approve their growing evidences of faith and assurance. But it is possible to have faith, understanding, and assurance and still fail the Lord. So unless we practice that faith, unless we apply that understanding and rest on that assurance, we're going to fail when the time of testing comes. That's what happened to the disciples, and Jesus warned them that it would happen. He had already warned Peter that, that he would deny him, but now he warned the entire group of disciples that they would all forsake him. John does not quote the Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 13.7. It's quoted in Matthew 26.31. And this statement from the Lord should have been a warning to Peter not to follow Jesus when he was arrested. Let those go their way, or let these go their way, was our Lord's word in the garden in John 18 and 8. He knew that it was not safe for them to tarry. Jesus, was, Jesus has promised never to leave us alone. Yet his own disciples left him alone. Look at Peter, James, and John when they went into the garden with him, but then they, rather than pray as they were supposed to be praying, they fell asleep. Jesus knew that the Father would be with him. He said, I'm not alone, but I and my Father that sent me. John 8, verse 16. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. John 8, 29. What an encouragement it was to the Son to know that he was doing the Father's will and that he, would, uh, that he could depend on the Father's help. At one point, Jesus did feel the absence of the Father when he, he, he said out loud, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Matthew 27, 46 and Psalms 22, 1, when he was made sin for us, he was separated. There was that separation from the Father. He was alone that he might never be alone. He was forsaken 
that he might never, that we might never be forsaken. So he went through, we know, he went through all this for us. He was separated from, separated from the Father. So he was alone. He was away, totally separated from him that we might never be alone. He was forsaken that we might never be forsaken. John 16, 33 is the summary and climax of the upper room message. Why did he give this message? So that the disciples might have peace in the world or in a world of tribulation. The world is full of troubles and tribulation, and the Bible is clear on telling us that that's what we will face in this world. But note the contrast between in me and in the world. In Christ there is peace. In the world there is tribulation. We've got to get that in our hearts. This is the position we need to claim. We are in Christ, and therefore we can overcome the world we have overcome the world and all of its hatred. George Morrison defined peace as the possession of adequate resources. In Jesus Christ, we have all the resources that we need. But let me say, peace depends also on appropriate relationships because spiritual resources depend on spiritual relationships. Quote, in me is the key. In ourselves we have nothing. In Christ we have all that we need or will ever need. Every believer is, is either overcome or an overcomer. And this is the victory, the Bible says in 1 John 5 and 4, that overcometh the world, even our faith. So the world wants to overcome us, and that is why Satan uses the world to persecute and pressure believers. The world wants us to conform. It does not want us to be different. But when we yield ourselves to Christ and we trust him, he enables us to be overcomers. He enables us to be overcomers. We must claim our spiritual position in Christ and believe him for victory. Be of good cheer is one of our Lord's repeated statements of encouragement. Literally means cheer up. So there is the good cheer of his, his pardon, Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. His power, Matthew 9, or yes, Matthew 9, 18 through 22, and his presence, Matthew 14, 22 through 27. And then here in John chapter 16, verse 33, he announces the good cheer of his victory over the world. We are overcomers because he has overcome for us. As we receive this teaching, this scripture, we can this chapter, we can see how these three explanations our Lord gave all fit together. He revealed a wonderful principle. God transforms sorrow into joy. But this principle will not work in our lives unless we believe his promise and pray. 
So God has ordained that his work is accomplished through believing prayer, but we will not be able to pray effectively if we do not claim our position as conquerors in Jesus Christ. And then in John 16:33 is also a preface to his great high priestly prayer. He had taught them the word. Now he would pray for them. The word and prayer must always go together. See Acts 6, verse 4. He used the word world 19 times in this prayer. For in it he shows us how to overcome the world. He himself was facing the hatred of the world and the devil. Yet he would be able to endure the suffering and win the victory. There is joy when we permit God to transform our sorrow into joy. We have to allow that. We have to look at it that way, not in a way that that God is going to substitute it. But the fact of the matter is that God is, the, the joy when we permit God, there will be joy when God transforms our sorrow into joy. But he's not going to always take that sorrow away. There is a joy when God answers prayer. There is a joy when we overcome the world. Let there be joy today. I pray with all my heart that you grasp some of the intimate nuggets of gold in that chapter there and that you get a hold of it and and hang on to it. That sorrow will be turned into joy in Jesus' name.